This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Rick Hansen, and this is part two of a conversation on self-directed brain change. Rick Hansen is the author of a new book called Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. He's a neuropsychologist and has created with Sounds True several programs, including The Enlightened Brain, Meditations for Happiness, and a new program on self-directed brain change. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rick and I spoke about how we can move from what he calls a red or reactive brain state to a green or calm brain state. We also talked about the core needs of safety, satisfaction, and connection and how moving from a red to a green brain state actually correlates to the progression of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. We also talked about how the sense of being an I, or a separate self, correlates or doesn't correlate with a specific brain state. And finally, we talked about Rick's vision for how healthy brains can actually change the state of our world. Here's the second part of my conversation with Rick Hansen on self-directed brain change. Rick, in your new book on hardwiring happiness and also your new audio program with Sounds True on self-directed brain change, you talk about something that you call green brains and red brains. Can you tell me what you mean by this? Sure, and I don't mean it literally, obviously. And by the way, my voice is very froggy because I'm working with a sore throat here, but with some lozenges, I'm actually doing fine. Um, what I mean by that is simply that as we evolved, as our ancestors uh, evolved over time, uh, in, in essence, they had to manage three three needs, uh, to avoid harms, to approach rewards, and attach to others. In other words, any living creature um, has three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Now, obviously, the way that worms manage their need for connection is quite different from the ways that humans manage their need for connection. But fundamentally, we have these core needs that are managed by these overarching systems that now, today, draw upon the entire brain. There's no choice about whether we have a uh, brainstem reptilian, subcortical mammalian, or cortical primate human uh, levels in our brain. And there's no choice about whether we can, you know, um, get around dealing with our needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. But what we do have some choice about is how we go about meeting those needs. And to simplify things a bit, but it's still relatively accurate, the brain has essentially two different ways, two different settings for meeting these needs. And 
when we experience a basic sense of safety and satisfaction and connection, the brain defaults to a kind of resting state, a sustainable homeostatic equilibrium in which the body repairs and refuels itself and recovers from bursts of stress. And in terms of these three broad systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching, the mind is colored in some general sense with a feeling of peace, contentment, and love. And to simplify a lot of material, I'm using these overarching terms like peace, contentment, and love. That's the good news. And I call that informally because it's easy to remember the green zone. And it's interesting to appreciate the larger implications of the green zone because it's a state in which there's little sense of deficit or disturbance. And therefore, there's little actual basis for uh, resisting or grasping or clinging. In other words, craving, broadly defined. There's This is the neuropsychological operationalization in a lot of ways of the third noble truth in Buddhism, the end of that craving, which leads to suffering and harm. It's not enlightenment, but it's a good foundation for practice, and it's a really good foundation for ordinary well-being and coping and even healing. This is the good news. And as you well know, uh, there are other ways to feel than uh, centered in peace, contentment, and love. The brain has a second setting. It's reactive mode. And by the way, these terms, responsive and reactive, and this overarching framework that I'm describing in terms of uh, three core needs and three motivational systems is a fairly widely used framework. I'm adapting it to my own purposes in some ways, but it's not uh, radical, basically, what I'm saying here. Okay, so we have the second setting in the brain. It's reactive mode, which is where we go when and where animals go when they experience that one or more of their core needs is not being met. In other words, they don't feel safe. They feel instead uh, fearful or angry or uh, helpless. Or, and, or they don't feel satisfied, but instead they feel disappointed or frustrated or sad. And they don't feel connected, but instead feel hurt or inadequate or abandoned or recently voted off the island. And at that point, when that happens, the brain fires up into its reactive mode, fight or flight, or depending on the conditions and the individual, freeze. And in this state, bodily resources are burned generally faster than they can be replenished. Bodily systems are banged hard and disturbed. And um, the mind in general, uh, long-term projects, by the way, I should say, in the body are put on hold, like strengthening the immune system or digesting. And the mind is colored in, again, three broad umbrella terms in terms of our needs for avoiding, approaching, and attaching. The mind is colored by fear, frustration, and heartache. This is a kind of neuropsychological operationalization of the second noble truth in Buddhism, a state of craving or resisting, you know, grasping and clinging uh, that's founded in or grounded in uh, the experience of deficit or disturbance. So that was a mouthful. Uh, yeah. Well, th- I have a few questions for you. I think it might be helpful if you could give an overview of the Four Noble Truths and help me understand a little bit more how you're making these correlations with the Second and Third Noble Truth. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, 
So the the Four Noble Truths uh, can be understood in purely psychological terms. So quick summary, the, the Buddha 2,500 years ago pointed out the truth of suffering. There is suffering, in fact, quite a lot of suffering. He didn't claim that there is only suffering, just that there's a lot of suffering, and that's an umbrella term that ranges from very subtle forms of physical or emotional discomfort to extremes of physical or mental anguish. Okay, the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is his view about the truth of the cause or a primary cause of this suffering. And he described that truth as one of craving in a broad umbrella term, whose roots in the language of early Buddhism, interestingly, are in the word thirst. Craving is based on a deficit state, a disturbance state, a sense of lack, not enoughness, uh, agitation. Okay, so his argument is that a primary, if not the primary source of suffering is craving in one form or another, again, ranging from subtle to intense. That then takes him to the third noble truth, which is the truth of um, the end of the cause of suffering, which is to say the end of the craving that causes suffering. And he says essentially that it is possible to uh, eliminate craving to the point of no suffering at all. And then the fourth noble truth is the path that both leads to that end of craving and the suffering and harm, as well as along the way um, embodies a gradual relaxing of uh, resisting and and grasping and clinging, and uh, along the way involves a growing happiness. So that's the that's a quick summary uh, of the Four Noble Truths. And what's interesting to me is to take him seriously. And in other words, to ask, okay, um, we have had you know, thousands of years of inquiry into the mental causes of suffering and happiness. All right, what are the underlying neural, biological, hormonal, evolutionary causes of suffering and happiness? So, for example, what does it mean actually, neuropsychologically, bodily, to crave in the second noble truth. Alternately, what would have to happen in an animal such as us, you or I or anyone listening to this, what would have to happen inside us so that the uh, uh, causes, as it were, the underlying causes of craving could fall away? And it's interesting to appreciate that through gradually internalizing positive experiences again and again and again and gradually taking it into yourself and and feeling that your core needs are met, uh, you build up the neural substrates, in effect, of the third noble truth. And you are increasingly grounded in a mind in which there is very little basis for that craving, which leads to suffering and harm. Okay, so to reflect this back for a moment to see if I'm following you here, is what you're saying that basically craving the second noble truth, what underlies our suffering, is like being in a red brain state, a reactive brain state, and that we can switch our brain states and end craving and move to the third noble truth by moving to a green brain state. And you can help us learn how to do this. And that's the fourth noble truth, that there's a path to switching from red brain to green brain. Is that what you're saying, Rick? That's exactly right, and, and I, I'm going to ask you to write all my stuff for me from now on. Now, to be clear, though, I'm not um, 
saying that we can just flip a switch from green to red, as it were. And uh, there, and also, obviously, uh, there are external conditions like poverty or injustice or war or whatnot that tend to uh, trigger us or put pressure on us to drive us in one direction or another. But from the standpoint of what can we do on the inside out in a world that tends to resist our efforts to uh, to 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 improve it dramatically, what can we do from the inside out? Yes, we can repeatedly internalize the felt sense of no deficit or disturbance, the felt sense of being sufficiently safe, satisfied, and connected. And since neurons that fire together wire together, et cetera, et cetera, this means that we can gradually help our brains learn to rest in the green zone. They're still engaged with life. They're still speaking truth to power, making love, making art, you know, jumping up and down when their team wins in sports or what have you, and you know, and still being determined, still dreaming big dreams, swinging for the fences and so forth. But we can engage life and face hard things, face real challenges, deal with real difficulties, while uh, being fundamentally centered in this underlying uh, sense of peace, contentment, and love. I liken it to deepening the keel of a sailboat uh, through our own practices and taking in the good again and again, registering the felt sense of no basis for craving. And then over time, like as with a sailboat, sailboat that has a deepening keel in the water, as things happen to us, as uh, we don't get knocked over, or if we get knocked over, we can recover more quickly. And when you know that about yourself, you become increasingly resilient. Your well-being becomes increasingly unconditional. You've internalized your sense of feeling loved and fulfilled and strong and safe inside. You've internalized it so that um, you don't need external conditions to make you happy. I like this image of the deepening keel on a sailboat because it helps answer this question, which is, it's not like anybody could be in a green brain state. And I'm going to use this green-red language because it's so easy. I like it. It's not like someone could be in a green brain state all the time, 24 hours a day. I mean, could they? Well, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? And again, what intrigues me a lot is to to operationalize uh, positive states of mind. In other words, there clearly are people uh, in everyday life, as well as people who are quite famous, who never seem to lose their balance. They don't suppress their feelings. You can see them ranging from you know relatives I have in North Dakota who've had, had to deal with a lot of difficulty all the way out or up, what have you, to the Dalai Lama or Archbishop Desmond Tutu. You can see these people are feeling their feelings, right? They're affected by things, but they they stay centered, right? And I think it's interesting to ask, you know, what is going on in their brain, right? Uh, in, particularly if someone has an interest in, you know, healing or the upper limits of human potential. But I think it's very possible to spend most of your time in the green zone. Uh, to add a couple to nuances here, uh, first, if you think of these three broad systems, they have they intertwine with each other, but they have a fair amount of independence. You know, avoiding harm, approaching reward, and attaching to others. So that in principle. One of these three, two of these three systems could be blinking green, as it were, or steady green, while one of them is blinking red. For example, 
uh, imagine a situation in which a person feels fundamentally safe inside, safe and strong, and also, you know, they're okay in terms of their satisfaction needs. They have enough money, basically. It'd be nice to always have more, what have you, but there's food in the fridge and all that. But something has happened in a relationship recently, like someone said something that was hurtful. So in the avoiding and approaching systems are green, but the attaching system is blinking red. Then the question becomes, will the red contaminate the green, or in effect, will the green contaminate the red? And I think that's an important choice point for a lot of people at tipping point. Uh, they can draw upon uh, the parts of themselves that are doing fine to gradually soothe and stabilize and deal with that red zone issue and then move that system back to, to green. Or alternately, if they haven't uh, repeatedly internalized a strong sense of needs met, you know, they don't have a very deep keel in the water so that if one system starts going red, it tends to drag the other two down with it. Now, this is very interesting to me that these three systems, one could be on red, two could be on green, that they're independent of each other. That's very interesting to me. I know, and it has it has a, an important implication. Uh, just before I say that, though, let me, if I could be clear about two things. One, I'm not trying to improve the Four Noble Truths. I'm simply trying to engage them in a sense at, a, at an underlying neurobiological level to the extent that that's useful, right, part one. And part two, you certainly know Buddhism quite well. Um, if you think about the so-called three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, right, and if you think about the ways in which they were originally conceived of as uh, fires uh, that drive suffering, well, if you you can map two out of three of those already to my little framework here, which is not my own. It's widely used, actually, in terms of three drives or needs we have around safety, satisfaction, and connection. Greed refers to the satisfaction system, the approaching reward system, and hatred refers to the avoiding harm system, obviously, with delusion wrapped around it all. Personally, I think that there are four poisons, not three. I think that the social system, the connection system, and our needs to attach to others and is so fundamental to us, both in terms of our joys and our sorrows. And there's so much neural real estate allocated to relationship functions that it's meaningful to think about four poisons, not three, that said. But it is very interesting, isn't it? If you, if you and how about, are you, what are you, na- uh, what are you naming the, as the fourth poison? Heartache. Uh-huh. Heartache. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think that if you think of the um, antidote to the poison of hatred, or I deliberately choose the word fear in a more modern way because hatred has a lot of connotations, um, the antidote to fear is peace. The ant- antidote to frustration, or the Buddha used the word greed, I, I replace it with frustration, um, just it, because, again, that's a more modern term. The antidote to frustration is contentment. And the antidote, obviously, to greed is contentment. And the antidote to heartache uh, is love, uh, love, feeling loved and loving altogether. So I'm curious, because, of course, the most important thing, I think, is when we find ourselves in a red brain state in any yeah. one of these parts of our lives, how do we take actions to change it? And so I'm curious, particularly yeah. in intimate relationships, because it does seem that yeah. that's often where we have the quickest triggers moving into red. Like, I can't believe you said Mm -hmm. that to me and within a quarter of a second. uh, Even without understanding what exactly the red brain is, I know that that's what I am in that moment. 
You know, I'm angry, I'm hysterical, yeah. I'm defended, I'm all of those things. Yeah. Well, what have you learned from your work with neuroscience about what I can do when I'm triggered in relationships to change yeah. that part of the brain from red to green? Right. It's interesting uh, how often the metaphors and language have a, you know, a wisdom built into them, like the, the phrase, seeing red, right? Um, uh, as, a, as an example of getting really angry. Uh, with other people. Well, two parts here. First part, this idea of these three systems that have a relative amount of independence from each other has a key implication here, which is that um, what will serve a need, if you will, a need that's driving us into the red zone in one system, is going to be some kind of resource experience or some kind of, if you will, supply that's also in that system. And it means that if we have, for example, for example, if we have an issue, to use your example, let's say in, our, in a relationship, someone has said something, I can't believe you said that, it's really hurtful, and boom, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing red, okay, in terms of the attaching system. Well, just think about it. If, um, I, if you uh, helped yourself feel safe or uh, relaxed, that wouldn't really address your hurt feelings or a sense of betrayal or abandonment. In other words, if you brought in a resource from the avoiding system to address an attaching system issue, it would not be very helpful. Similarly, if you've just been recently abandoned or betrayed by an intimate partner and a reward came in, in terms of the satisfaction system, let's say your boss called you up and said, "Hey, you're going to get you're going to get a thousand dollar bonus." That'd be nice. Or if you did gratitude practice, that'd be nice. But it doesn't address your need in the attaching system. So this idea of targeted antidote experiences, I call them. What's your vitamin C? In other words, if you have scurvy, you need vitamin C. If you have anemia, you need iron. And as someone whose primary wounds myself were in the attaching system. I needed, in effect, I had scurvy, I needed vitamin C, but I tried to solve that problem by bringing in experiences in the um, avoiding system. I tried to feel strong, but that medicine didn't solve my, take care of my need, you know. It wasn't the food my soul needed. And I tried to solve my sense of loneliness and abandonment in the attaching system by being successful, accomplishing things in terms of the approaching reward system. And that was nice, but again, it didn't address my need. It was only when I began to really internalize repeatedly feelings of being cared about in one way or another that I really started taking the medicine, you know, that I needed. I started taking my vitamin C, as it were, for my own personal scurvy. So concretely then, let's say you or someone is in that situation, I think it's really important to do what you can, obviously, in the moment to, you know, try to calm down a little bit and keep your wits about you and step back and try to understand the situation and so forth. But then after that, there are a handful of um, high-impact resources you can turn to and then you see which one seems appropriate and helpful to you. So one is to obviously bring up the sense of other people who care about you. It doesn't replace the fact or alter the fact that this very important person, let's say, has recently hurt you or even betrayed and abandoned you. But it'll help you feel better if you bring to mind, for example, the sense of being with your dog or the sense of that you have friends that you can talk with or they're inside you in a way or people who've loved you over the years and you've taken into yourself 
they're now inside you. So your keel, as it were, in the water, at least in terms of the attaching system, is deeper because you have a felt sense of being loved inside, ideally, that you can draw upon. Or certainly today, you know, reach out to people to talk with them about the situation. So to me, that's one go-to, to either create here and now or call up the felt sense of um, the experience of being cared about by others. Second, I have found remarkably, weirdly, <laughs> that when I see the suffering in the other person who has hurt me and wounded me and mistreated me, it actually helps me feel better. It's benevolent, it's moral, let's say, to see the suffering in the other person, but it's also enlightened self-interest because somehow it helps us see, feel better to see the ways in which they're hurting too, they're weary, they're stressed. It's probably part of why they've been a jerk, let's say. Um, it doesn't let them off the moral hook. I don't mean this to, or it doesn't mean we're walking on eggshells around them, but I just mean that somehow when we can see the being behind their eyes, uh, we don't feel so bad. Um, and we can even move into compassion for them, amidst compassion for ourselves. Uh, the last thing I'll just say here is that um, I think another thing that really uh, works for us in terms of being enormously social animals is, oddly enough, to be loving ourselves. It's very curious that being loving is not depleting. People sometimes think that if there's an emptiness inside in which they haven't received enough love, that the last thing in the world they want to do is to be loving because somehow they think that will be depleting. But actually, love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out. And as we um, shift into finding someone to love, in other words, let's say if, you know, you know, Sue has really hurt me and abandoned me and mistreated me, one way to help me feel better is for me to feel loving in one form or another toward Mary. You know, feeling loving toward that other person will somehow help me feel better about being let down by, in this example, Sue. Isn't that amazing? It's like a kind of alchemy that feeling loving can help soothe wounds around not being loved. Yeah, and I think we people can probably find experiences like that in their life yeah. that confirm what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Rick, you said that you weren't trying to improve on the Four Noble Truths, and <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> but I, 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 you're just trying to add some neuroscientific... Is yeah. word I take refuge in. <laughs> right. Very good. Uh, I, I'm curious, though, in your work with neuroscience, neuropsychology, if you've found any aspects of Buddhist teachings that you think, wow, these findings are actually showing me something different, something different than what has been taught for 2,600 years in the Dharma. Uh, so you're saying, you know, speaking of the Dalai Lama's famous point, you know, if science you know, proves something that contradicts some aspect of Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist teaching will have to change. Yeah. Right? Have you, have, fact, yeah. Are you asking about that? Yeah. Have you discovered yeah. anything like that? Well, that's, um, well, the fact that I'm quiet for once <laughs> and my mind's racing here, just scanning so many things. Um, it, well, first, when we say Buddhism, I think what I'd like to do is stick with 
that at those portions of Buddhism that are inside the natural frame, that naturalist frame as we've discussed, in other words, that don't involve things like reincarnation or um, you know supernatural levels of reality and so forth, but are really you know completely psychological. Uh, and I think those are mostly found, um, I would say, in the, in the early teachings of Buddhism are mostly purely psychological. So I'm going to focus on that part. In terms of those parts, um, the I really can't think of things that seem really wrong. And I feel internally that I'm quite prepared to. What I actually what happens more often for me, Tammy, which is really interesting, is that uh, I am a pretty deep student of Buddhism, especially the you know the the original roots of it, you know, early Indian Buddhism found in Theravadan Buddhism or the Pali Canon, and I continually or, or routinely will have an experience in which some subtle point uh, in the Dharma or in a commentary about it suddenly makes sense to me. From a neuropsychological perspective, uh, for example, a little one example here in the aggregates, as you may know, and if this, this may be way too much inside baseball for people, but whatever, you know, as you know, the five aggregates are usually listed in this order: form, which is both uh, all of materiality and our bare apprehension of it, and then second, the feeling tone of experience, sometimes called the hedonic tone in psychology, as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Then comes perception, which is labeling or memory, what the thing is. And then the so-called volitional formations, which entail, comprise all of our other mental activities, such as thoughts, feelings, desires, and so forth. And then consciousness or awareness. Well, I always wondered, why does feeling come first? Why does the feeling tone come before perception? But then I found out and realized that in terms of the processing stream, in the brain, generally, it's more important to jump first and ask questions later. In other words, the raw sense of something, a stimulus, either external or internal, as pleasant or unpleasant, is something that the animal, including complex animals like us, has to react to immediately. And the labeling of the stimulus, is it's all right if it comes in a second or two later. In other words, classic example, you're walking down a path and there's you know, some kind of curvy shape you suddenly notice out of the corner of your eye and you jump back in alarm, right? And then one to three to five seconds later, you know, uh, higher levels of perceptual processing come in and say, oh, that was a vine, you know, not a snake, right? But from a standpoint of survival, it makes sense to just register unpleasant alarm and leap back, you know, before this labeling comes in. So to me, that's why I think in the sequence or the conventional list, perception comes after the feeling tone. So to know, and even what really interests me a lot, and it's very neat, deep end of the pool kind of stuff, is the ways in which um, scans of the brain, while people are engaged in different seemingly self-referential activities, like recognizing a personal photograph amidst a group of people or establishing, declaring a moral choice or pulling up a personal memory or comparing themselves to others, you cannot find any place in the brain that is specialized for me, myself, and I. You can't find self anywhere in the brain. It's widely distributed, continually changing, and based of many parts. In other words, in the technical sense, it's empty of any kind of absolute self-existence, the sense 
that there actually is an eye, gosh darn it, looking out through the eyes, you know, the agent of action and the owner of experiences. So neuroscience, modern neuroscientific studies are really supporting and corroborating, you know, the Buddha's argument 2,500 years ago that the apparent I is actually a fictional character. Okay, so once again, I want to make sure I'm understanding you here because this is this is. Uh, you should tether important. me more. You no, 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 no. What's swimming in the deep end? Let those swim oh. freely. Uh, but okay. but I do want to make sure that I'm understanding you, which is you're saying that when someone's having a super self-referential experience, I, I, me, me, yeah. mine, that's the photo of me, etc. There isn't one section of the brain that's lighting up, but that there are several sections of the brain lighting up at the same time. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and it's worse than that. What I mean is it, there's a term localization of function. What it means is that like um, the amygdala, you know, the alarm bell of the brain is continually tracking the pleasantness or unpleasantness of experience and signaling to the rest of the brain whether something is really pleasant or unpleasant, and especially if it's unpleasant. Okay, so it performs a particular function. Or there are parts of the brain that get very involved in moving the muscles that control your little finger and your right hand. Or there are parts of the brain that are specialized for uh, comprehending language that are distinct from one's places that are responsible for producing language. All right? There's a lot of localization of function in the brain, although, of course, the whole thing works together. But with regard to something that seems so central to us, you could argue even more central. I mean, you can lose language, or you can go deaf, for example, but, or you can lose your little finger or what have you, but you still feel like I, right? You still feel like I'm Rick, right? You're Tammy. I am Rick, my precious, okay? That's such a strong and central aspect to us, and yet... Actually, if you look at the brain, when people in different studies are doing different kinds of tasks that use different aspects or seem to call upon the sense of an eye, there's no particular part of the brain that does that. And second, the parts of the brain that activate when people are doing these self-referential or, or uh, activities or activities that would seem to really draw upon a strong sense of I or me or mine, right? The parts of the brain that activate when there's a strong sense of self also activate when people are doing things that have nothing to do with self whatsoever. Uh, famous literature reviews about the neuroscience of the apparent self have titles like um, Is Self Special? <laughs> you know, question mark. Because they can't find any place that's special for self. Or they'll have study, uh, titles like these literature reviews, What is Self-Specific? And they can't find anything. Isn't that extraordinary? That is. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash 
free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, I want to talk about something that I think is really part of our collective cultural dialogue right now, which is people talking about trauma and the traumatic experiences they've had, and potentially this sense that something has now triggered them in the present that has triggered something like trauma brain, like, oh, I'm in trauma brain right now because XYZ event just happened to me and it reminds me or is triggering something from early childhood. Is there such a thing as quote-unquote trauma brain? Well, I I hear that question at two levels. Please make sure that I'm tracking it here. I think of a brain in the moment of trauma. We could call that trauma brain. You know, you're driving along and suddenly somebody runs through a red light and smashes into your car and you're bleeding and your your child is screaming in the back seat. That's be pretty. Hopefully, I'm not re-traumatizing somebody right now. Um, or alternately, you can talk about a brain not in the acute moment of the trauma, but a brain that has been, let's say, traumatized or or even repeatedly traumatized, and then is now in an in a non-traumatic situation, and yet still we have this trauma brain. Yes, right? that's talking about yes, that's what I'm talking. Kinds? Yeah, I'm talking about both kinds actually. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, and it's helpful, I think, just to make that distinction. So, yeah, there are um, fairly clear profiles about what it's like to have a brain on trauma, uh, both acute trauma and, let's say, you know, a traumatized brain more generally. And sidebar, it's interesting that these profiles of the so-called trauma brain are a lot clearer than the profiles of the so-called self-brain, you know, or selfing brain, if you will, just to make that point in passing, you know, related to what we just talked about. So to go back, uh, and if, you, if you're asking me about what are some of the key aspects and what can people do? Yeah, really what, the, what they can do the about it. That's, that's really where I'm going, which is let's say someone has had some kind of early childhood trauma yeah. that's severe, and here they are yeah. as an adult, and they get triggered in certain situations. How can they, quote-unquote, rewire their brain yeah. so that they're more resilient and not so subject to being brought back into those traumatic experiences. Yeah, this is a huge topic, and um, I'll try to be super succinct about it because uh, otherwise, you know, it would be hours. And there are people, by the way, who are real specialists in this area, and I'm not a specialist in this area. I'm a very interested um, observer, though. So a couple of keys. One thing that happens typically um, in a traumatized brain is a decoupling or a, a breaking of the links between thinking and feeling. So, and literally, uh, the um, integrated activity of regions in the uh, prefrontal cortex, just behind the just behind the forehead, and more ancient, sometimes called limbic centers, or probably a more accurate technical term would be subcortical regions like the amygdala and the hippocampus and the basal ganglia. Um, coordination or communication between these different uh, sectors, if you will, you know, sort of the reasoning executive judgment centers and the, the, the you know, like cool reason, as it were, and hot passion, they break apart. So uh, people can feel, on the one hand, numb, like they're just in their head. They can think clearly, but they don't feel like they have much access to their feelings or their heart, using that term metaphorically, or flip the other way. You know, the 
the hot furnace, if you will, of the passions can erupt. And there's little capacity to think clearly when a person's sad or angry or scared or hurt or upset, um, or to bring, uh, you know, um, a reason or logic or planning to to that passion. So that's one thing. And so one of the things people can do about it is to try to integrate thinking and feeling more and more so they can bring language to their emotions. Uh, and also, interestingly, one of the centers of thinking and feeling in the brain, the frontal or anterior cingulate cortex, is also very involved in meditation, especially uh, deliberate uh, application of attention meditations before you go all the way down into absorption, when at that point, this anterior frontal cingulate cortex tends to go more offline. So the bonus here is that if you routinely practice meditation, um, and hopefully that works for a person, and they're not flooded by their um, by their past, as sometimes can happen for people. But if you generally, if you partic- if you routinely practice mindfulness meditation, you will build up neural structure in a key part of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, that is very involved in integrating thinking and feeling. So that's one point. Second point uh, that's very practical in terms of what a person can do is to face the fact that um, we have a brain as part of the negativity bias that is very vulnerable to to becoming sensitized to the negative over time so that it starts reacting more intensely to um, frightening or irritating or um, uh, shaming or or saddening kinds of experiences, which then make it even more reactive down the road in a vicious cycle. And one of the aspects of that is that over time, the amygdala becomes actually sensitized, so the alarm bell rings more readily and more loudly. And second, uh, the stress uh, hormone cortisol that is released in chronic stress, particularly traumatic stress, gradually uh, overstimulates and even kills neurons in the hippocampus, a different part of the brain that puts things in perspective and also calms down the amygdala. So from a practical standpoint here, a person can both uh, start recovering function in their hippocampus um, by uh, doing things that work it, like deliberately trying to put things in context by, for example, putting their history in context, finding meaning in it, or some sense of causality, not to let anybody off the hook necessarily, but to see it as part of a larger picture. That kind of activity certainly engages the hippocampus. And another thing that helps recover hippocampal function is exercise, and because that promotes the birth of new baby neurons there. And also, um, engaging complexity and stimulation, ranging from doing crossword puzzles or jigsaw puzzles, uh, because the hippocampus is also involved in visual spatial activities. So if you do visual spatial activities like making art or walking in different parts of your neighborhood to engage visual spatial memory or playing games that involve things like mazes and whatnot, you can also strengthen the hippocampus. Um, and also you can keep these new baby neurons alive you know, that have been stimulated through exercise by complexity, uh, engaging things that just kind of work your mind. So you can improve your hippocampus. You can also um, uh, uh, strengthen the receptors in the amygdala that receive oxytocin and also receive pleasure molecules, the natural opioids like the endorphins and so forth. 
So this alarm bell, right, is inhibited by oxytocin release, which is associated with experiences of bonding and love and feeling both loved and loving. Uh, Certainly experiences of feeling loved or loving that are very concrete and sensual and primal, you know, like rubbing soft flannel on your cheek or petting your cat or hugging a lover, uh, just being really close. But you can also stimulate oxytocin through imagination, such as through doing loving kindness practices or compassion practices or bringing to mind someone you feel devotion for or others who, who love you. So by doing that, you both bring um, oxytocin flows into the amygdala, which will tend to calm and soothe it. And that maps very closely to our own experience, doesn't it? Then that when we feel loved and cared about, uh, we don't feel so stressed or reactive. And over time, those uh, oxytocin-stimulating practices will actually sensitize its receptors, uh, oxytocin receptors in the amygdala. So in a positive way, you can gradually sensitize your amygdala to relational experiences. And to wrap up here, you can also do something quite similar in terms of pleasure experiences, pleasure broadly defined, certainly including, you know, chocolate chip cookies, but also um, just thinking of things that make you feel happy. That'll tend to release those natural opioids. The amygdala has receptors for them too. And uh, as we take in the good again and again, both through relational experiences that are oxytocin related, as well as more general uh, pleasure or happiness experiences that stimulate the opioids, we can gradually sensitize that alarm bell so it reacts more and more to pleasant, to positive experiences, and less and less to negative ones. And then if I could say one last thing really fast, buy yourself time. Because these subcortical systems, the amygdala, these ancient systems, amygdala, basal ganglia, and so forth, they have a kind of fast track that connects them to the big sensory processing switchboard in the brain, the thalamus. And meanwhile, the thalamus, so while the thalamus sends uh, information to these subcortical regions uh, really quickly, you know, kawoosh, you know, alarm, watch out, uh, it also sends signals to the prefrontal cortex behind the forehead, but those signals are a little slower. Right, so sometimes what often what happens when people get when people have a trauma brain, to use your term, um, they react extremely quickly to some internal thought or feeling or to an external stimulus, and that kind of hijacks them. You know, people use language like a reptile brain hijack or an amygdala hijack. The trick is to buy your prefrontal cortex a few seconds, buy it time, because it just it just the amygdala, as it were, gets about a three-second head start, maybe even less, actually. Uh, unfortunately, that head start can then start to condition everything in this you know, cascade of reactivity that shapes the way the prefrontal cortex, as it were, views things. But if you just buy yourself some time, keep your mouth shut. You know what I mean? I've rarely gotten in trouble uh, by not saying something. You know what I mean? Once in a blue moon, but uh, most of the times I got in trouble uh, were based on saying something or taking some kind of action. But if I had just bought myself a little more time, you know, five, ten seconds to think more clearly about the situation and to put things in perspective and to realize that I was not in this moment in mortal danger, or someone I love is not in mortal danger, then I could have acted a lot better. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. 
it might be to say in a state like that, I think I might just need some time before I respond or something like that to actually make yeah, a statement like that. Yeah, buy yourself some time. Yeah. Yeah. Tara Brock has the phrase, as you know, I think, the sacred pause. Yeah. So, Rick, we started our two-part conversation way back when talking about positive neuroplasticity. And I'm wondering if you've found that there's any type of wiring or structure in the brain that just won't change. It's not going to get rewired. It's not going to change. All of this talk about changing our brain, self-directed brain change, it's great, but these yeah. things aren't going to change. So let's just put that out on the table. Right, right. Well, first, um, when when anyone who, who's engaged now with this territory of so-called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, how the brain changes um, based on experiences, uh, anyone who's engaged with that, myself included, knows that these changes we're talking about are relatively small and subtle in terms of the larger uh, structures of the brain. That said, as anyone who has uh, learned to become less anxious, say, or more determined or more loving knows, you can feel really different inside based on some fairly subtle and, and small changes in your brain. So I want to put this in context here. So most of the brain is not going to be changed even uh, in the brains of people who, let's say some of these Tibetan monks that, whose brains have now been studied quite carefully, you know, people who have done thirty to 50,000 hours lifetime of meditation and who psychologically seem like tremendously remarkable people through thick and thin, no matter how tough it is, they never get knocked over. They're always in the responsive mode, basically. They're always... They're, they're locked on green, you know, even as they engage very hard things in life. Well, clearly, you know, their, their minds have changed dramatically, but if you examine their brains, their brains don't look very different from that of a brain of, let's say, someone who's got a trauma brain. So part one, I think it's important to put it in perspective. Second, you know, our core personalities don't change, our core temperaments. Uh, also, you can't change our fundamental drives. Those are not going to change. More generally... I think that it's possible that people who have had devastating trauma, particularly at a time when they were extremely vulnerable, like in the first three years of life, particularly if they were incredibly vulnerable as individuals themselves, maybe they had a health problem or a premature birth, what have you, I think it's arguable that there are certain kinds of injuries that we can never fully recover from. We can rehabilitate them. We can heal tremendously around them. But there will always remain, I think of it as like a, a trick knee, a psychological trick knee, you know, that the person will have to be careful about. Uh, using the metaphor of the trick knee, they can still, after they do, you know, really, really intensive rehab on their knee, they can still go skiing and maybe even go down a black diamond slope, but they need to wear a brace um, ice their knee afterward and avoid moguls, let's say. But they can still enjoy their life fully. Nonetheless, that knee was terribly broken. You know, So I think that's true. I think it's possible that there can be certain kinds of devastating um, injuries that we just never fully recover from. But we can still have a tremendous recovery. And I think there's tons of evidence that supports that if we do the work. That And then last point on that, it... Uh, it's a kind of it's a broad finding in neuroscience that has huge implications, and it's this: 
as you go down what's called the neuro axis, and you can people listening can just literally do this right now. You know, if you, as it were, place your finger on the top of your head, and then imagine, and then bring your finger down, or just imagine it uh, moving down through the cortex, and then roughly around the area, you know, more or less of your ear, uh, through the subcortex, and then you know, lower it down into the brainstem. Um, as you go down what's called the neuroaxis, you also go back in time. You move back in time from the human to the primate to the mammalian to the reptilian to the earth, all the way back to the jellyfish, you know, stage of neural evolution 600 million years ago. And as you go back down in time and as you go down the neuroaxis, neuroplasticity decreases. In other words, the capacity of the cortex to be shaped by experience is great. And you could argue that our needs related to um, attaching to others, which are primarily managed in the cortex, which has tripled in volume over the last several million years as our our humans and our hominid uh, ancestors became incredibly social over the last several million years, you know, we can learn a lot Relate and quickly related to our relationships. In principle, we have the neural capability of that. There's tremendous neuroplasticity there. If you go down into the subcortex, right, basal ganglia, amygdala, hippocampus, thalamus, and so forth, there is some neuroplasticity down there. I talked about neuroplasticity. For example, repeatedly taking in, uh, letting it sink in, feeling loved or feeling um, happy in one way or another can... Uh, uh, produce neuroplastic changes, let's say, in terms of oxytocin receptors or endorphin receptors in the amygdala. Okay, there's some change there, but it's slower, which suggests that our um, uh, issues related to approaching rewards, including chasing addictions of one kind or another, or uh, being driven and driven and driven, you know, greed, if you will, um, you know, that's slower to change and needs more effort to change. And then if you go all the way down, into the brainstem that um, manages our mo- that that is the origin really or the root of the most primal um, motivational system of all the avoiding harm system because you know rule one in the wild is eat lunch today don't be lunch today if you have issues related to fear or trauma because uh, trauma gets down to the avoiding harm system obviously because you are unable to avoid that harm and you're now afraid of being harmed again in that way, etc. Well, there is some neuroplasticity down in the brainstem, but it's really quite small compared to the neuroplasticity in the subcortical regions, let alone the neuroplasticity in the cortex. And that means to me, from a practical standpoint, that um, if you have issues in the approach and reward system, like addictive issues, you need a lot of learning experiences that will take you in a different direction. And then even more primally, if a person has issues in the avoiding harm system, issues of of anxiety disorders, traumatization, um, just real intense movement to anger, for example, rage reactions, those issues need a lot of care, a lot of rehabbing. Uh, To put it metaphorically, to sum up here, you know, it's corny, but it works for me to think of it this way. If you think of the sort of three stages of neural evolution, you know, reptilian, mammalian, and primate human, it's as if inside each one of us, certainly inside me, is a little uh, uh, 
little lizard, a little mouse, and a little monkey. And to make my point concretely, related to the fairly minimal amount of neuroplasticity in the brainstem, our inner lizard needs a lot of padding. And when I realized this about minimal neuroplasticity in the in the brainstem, it helped me understand in a whole new way uh, the amount of effort that's necessary to work with issues of anxiety and to heal from trauma. It's very helpful. One final question for you, Rick. I know that you have a social vision for your work, a vision of how the world could actually we could say, become more filled with green brains. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this social vision that you're carrying in your heart. Oh, thank you. I'm quite touched that you're bringing that up here. Um, Well, there are obviously many causes of the difficulties in the world, and this is a subject of some debate, but generally speaking, uh, there have been improvements you know, in conditions in the world in many kinds of ways over the last hundred years, certainly the last thousand or ten thousand years. But still, you know, the world's pretty messed up in ways large and small. So the question then becomes, you know, what is the brain's contribution to the problems of the world? And uh, in if you think about brains in the red zone, you know, brains locked onto fear, frustration, and heartache. Um, you know the red the reactive mode of the brain is the primary source of the brain's contributions to poverty, injustice, aggression, uh greed broadly defined, you know, growing wealth inequality in in the United States and in other parts of the developed world for example, uh the ways in which wealthy countries exploit not so wealthy countries that are not so powerful, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you think of it, that's the brain on red. That's the reactive mode of the brain. You know, in terms of its need it's, uh, to um, avoid harms, you know, approach rewards and attach to others, it's going about meeting those needs in ways that maybe are, you know, filling up the bank account or building up the armies of one country or, or social group or another, but are really creating a tremendous amount of suffering and harm worldwide. So to operationalize a realistic vision of a world that could have a soft land- landing. I imagine for myself, what would be a tipping point? You know, how many brains would it take to spend most minutes of most days in the green zone, in the responsive mode of the brain? How many brains would it actually take worldwide? And my personal number, realistically, having looked at a lot of history, is probably around a billion. But I think if we could get around a billion brains uh, resting in green, most of the time. Okay, and where, where do you think would... where do you think we are now on, on our way to that? Uh, no, I'm serious. Great I mean, question. Where are we? I wow, you know, ten million, a hundred million, and I'm talking about most minutes, like ninety eight percent of the minutes in ninety eight percent of the days. Let's just think about that. Uh, you know, um, maybe a hundred million. I think we're we're edging in that direction. You know. And uh, But I think, obviously, we need to tip more. It's not a guarantee. People, there are sadly many examples of people who clearly are, they don't feel scared, they feel safe, they feel satisfied, and they feel connected, and they're still serious jerks or tyrants, you know, or megalomaniacs or greed hogs. But 
generally speaking, I think more and more, as people feel peaceful inside in terms of the avoiding system, they go green in regard to the avoiding system, they're going to be less aggressive and warlike toward others. And also as people feel more contented in terms of the approaching system, they're going to be less greedy. They're going to be more willing to share. They're not going to be so motivated around uh, wealth inequality, you know, getting mine, right? And as people feel more loved and, and more connected in terms of the attaching to other system, they're going to be more generous toward other people and more capable of being cooperative toward them. Um, you can see, I think, a lot of the difficulty in American politics right now uh, in this classic ancient story in which there's a, a very powerful minority of the population that feels very much like an us, and all others are these alien contaminators who are robbing the true Americans, if you will, of their birthright and are you know, invasive and exploitive. And when, you know, you feel rested in that kind of reactive view in terms of the attaching system, for example, it takes things to a very bad place. So that's why, just to sum up, I do think as a practice, starting ideally in childhood and then in everyday life, to really internalize again and again and again a felt sense of basic safety, the war's over, I'm not actually being threatened in this moment, it's not threat level orange. It's actually in this moment, threat level green. You know, And if people would repeatedly let it sink in, there's plenty already in this moment. You know, There's enough right now. I already have enough. I can be contented You know, in terms of the approaching system. And if people would just let it sink in, I'm liked enough already. I'm loved enough already. I've been loved enough, if that's authentically true. And I think for many people it actually is true. And I can expand the circle of us to include those various thems out there while still taking care of my own needs and that of my own groups and so forth. If I can do that in terms of the attaching system and do those practices every day, which I do, I do practices of the felt sense of peace, contentment, and love every day, you know, it's hard to imagine that that could hurt, right? And I truly think it could really, really help. On our way to a billion... And more. That's right. Hey, Rick, That's you know, it's right. been great to talk to you. I learn so much every time I talk with you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's mutual, Tammy. It's a great pleasure. And may this conversation be a benefit to many, many beings. Rick Hansen's the author of a new book, Hardwiring Happiness. And with Sounds True, he's created a new audio program called Self-Directed Brain Change. Rewire your neural pathways for happiness and resilience. He's also created an audio program called Meditations for Happiness and a six-session audio course on the enlightened brain, the neuroscience of awakening. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.